Uh, yeah, the reading this morning is from Matthew 18, and it's verses 15 to 17, and then verses 23 to 35. And it's up on the screen as well. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then moving down to verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, good morning. Please have Matthew 18 on your lap. And uh, let me remind you of a film that some of you may have seen. Uh, the Superman franchise has gone through various iterations through time. Christopher Reeve, for me, will always be Superman. That's back in the 80s. But one of the more recent films is called Superman, Man of Steel. Uh, Superman, Clark Kent, is living off grid. He's up in Canada, somewhere like that. He's living remotely. But there's a scene at the beginning of Superman, Man of Steel, where he's in a bar. Some unkind words are said towards a lady. He steps in and wants to stick up for her. Beer is thrown over him and he's soaked. And, and you see the muscles ripple under his shirt. I, I was a body double for him. Believe that, if you will. And um, his muscles are rippling. He's about to show some of his strength and force uh, and, and uphold a righteous cause. And then he relents as someone puts their hand on his shoulder. And the scene comes to an end and he walks out of the bar. Later on, there's another scene, there's another man who was his assailant, who was his wrongdoer, who was treating a lady unkindly. They finish their drinks with them friends and they walk out of the bar and the night has descended upon this remote scene. And then as he looks towards his log uh, truck, it's been treated like a child's toy. A superman whose strength was restrained inside the bar has revealed the strength of his arm, literally, and has made a contortion of this man's logging truck that looks like Jenga. 
um, as it's stuck uh, and, and skewered through with a few uh, log poles as it uh, jets up into the sky. It's a little symbol, the scene of uh, the modern mindset of don't get mad, get even. Don't get mad, get even, or even don't get mad, get revenge. Those are two statements that we hear a lot about in our modern culture. Get revenge, get even. There's no such language in the kingdom of God. There's no such language from the lips of Jesus as he speaks to us through his word. Matthew 18 is a very hard-hitting passage from the Bible. It talks about forgiveness, relationships, and reconciliation. It's a timeless, hard-hitting message that we need to hear. There's no place for revenge in the kingdom of God. There's no place even for getting even. But in this hard-hitting passage, Jesus says, my kingdom, my community, the hallmark of it is forgiveness. Let me remind you where we are in Matthew's gospel. You can see on the screen, Matthew has been revealing to us the character and nature of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew chapter 18 fits into, it's the fourth of five um, speeches, teaching sections that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 18, he's talking about the conduct of the kingdom. What would it be like for people to live and model and exhibit the character of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven? What would it look like for Christians to behave in a way that Jesus embodies and models so perfectly. He's talking about the, the conduct of the kingdom. Centrality in the Gospel of Matthew is on the kingdom of heaven. Jesus describes it from the beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're in the conduct of the kingdom. No vengeance, but forgiveness. No revenge, but reconciliation. And as we think about those two words, forgiveness and reconciliation, where in our time, in our generation, we would say, well, that's a private thing. That's something you do in your own heart, not in the time of Jesus. Jesus says forgiveness, reconciliation, that's to be conducted in the church. Relationships are to be prized and honoured and guarded. And reconciliation is not something that's an optional extra. It's something that should be pursued and longed for, something that you aim for almost at all costs because it's a corporate necessity and it's a corporate reality. Relationships are so important, even virtual ones that we're having right now. They're a substitute for the real thing, a bit like Diet Coke and Coca-Cola. But I want to thank you with you about uh, what Jesus says about relationships and reconciliation. It's really hard hitting. And Jesus says, why is it so crucial? What is it? What's forgiveness anyway? And how do you do it? Let's look at those three things, shall we? Why is reconciliation, why is forgiveness so crucial? I want us to go to the end of that parable that Jesus begins in sentence 23, and he gets to the end in sentence 35. Why is, cru why is it crucial that we pursue forgiveness and reconciliation? What does Jesus say, beginning at uh, verse 23? Look down with me would you at those sentences jesus tells a parable he tells a parable of a king who forgives his servant who has not run up a little bit of debt his debt is astronomical it's, it's vast it's huge but by the time we get to verse 33 and we recognize that the king by his kindness 
has forgiven his servant who's racked up this huge debt, this mountain of debt. The forgiveness that the king shows to him has not made the servant who's been forgiven a forgiving person. He's hard-hearted towards one of his servants who comes to him asking for forgiveness. And so by the time we get to verse 34, the king says, enough. I've shown you kindness. I've shown you grace. I've wiped away your debt. But now I see a window into your heart when someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness. You've given him none. You're mean-spirited. You're unkind. You're ungracious. The forgiven one has not become forgiving. And so verse 34, verse 35, as you look down at those verses, please. What does Jesus say will happen? Verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is saying an unforgiving heart, someone who refuses to forgive someone else, if they're a Christian, that leads to eternal punishment. Harsh, heart-hitting words from Jesus. An unforgiving heart, if you're a Christian, the fruit of that, the consequence of that, leads to eternal punishment. Jesus is not saying, if you refuse to forgive, then I won't forgive you and you go to hell. It's not tit for tat or quid pro quo. But what he is saying to you is, if you're a Christian, man or a Christian woman, Christian boy or Christian girl, and you refuse to forgive someone, That's a sign that my grace has not borne fruit in your heart. That's a sign that you're not open to my grace. I mean, here are two trees side by side. Just imagine that we're now in October and a lovely spring is followed by a warm summer and there's a bounteous crop of apples on an apple tree, on my apple tree, if the squirrels don't get to them first. Just imagine there are two trees in your garden. One has just got a bunch load of apples on it huge crop the the tree arms are being laid down and laden with fruit but then there's another apple tree in your garden another apple tree and it's barren there's no fruit still got leaves but no fruit you think well hang on both apple trees should have fruit on them but one of the signs that the apple tree is healthy and alive is that it bears much fruit i mean maybe the one without fruit maybe that has a disease Maybe it's dying. Maybe the leaves are about to fall as well. But the fruit reveals life. Jesus says there's no better way for people to see my grace at work in your life than you bear the fruit of forgiveness. That there is fruit in your relationships. That's a sign that you're like that fruit saturated, that fruit laden tree that you forgive other people. Look at verse 34. It sounds really harsh, doesn't it? The king saying, I'm going to put that man in prison. I've shown him forgiveness and then that forgiveness has not been shown to somebody else. I'm going to put him in prison because he's not forgiving. It sounds harsh, but actually, I tended to you, it's absolutely realistic. When I'm angry with someone, maybe when you are too, when we're angry at someone, when we hold on to that grudge, There's a power that it gives to me and to you. I can feel self-pitying. No one understands my pain. I can feel self-righteous. I don't do what they do towards other people. The way they've treated me is so unkind. I've never treated someone like that. 
And very quickly, all my thoughts move away from other people and I'm a wounded animal. It's all about me. I'm self-righteous, I'm self-pitying, and I'm very self-centered. And Jesus is saying, when that happens to you, you're on a dangerous path. My grace, my forgiveness has not impacted your relationships. That means I and people like that are becoming more like Satan, more hard-hearted like Satan than we are soft-hearted and gracious like Jesus. You have all the marks that you're on the journey to eternal punishment, says Jesus. I mean, here's the gospel. I and you and everyone who trusts in Jesus have been forgiven the greatest debt that we can ever understand or grasp. And so every single moment of my life and your life should be filled with grace. We should be like that first servant with the debt that's been forgiven us, that infinite debt that we can't fully fathom or understand. And so grace should be all over our relationships and in every part of our life. And so if I hold the gospel true to my heart and yet I hold on to a grudge, at very least that says that we're blocking the truth of God's grace and the impact that it should be having by his spirit in our heart. It might be that you're kidding yourself and actually you're not, you're not a Christian at all because Jesus is saying very starkly, the sign that you understand the infinite debt that you've been forgiven by the grace of God, by the death of his son Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, is that you'll forgive other people. I told you it was hard hitting, didn't I? And if you don't forgive, Jesus is saying, you're blocking my grace and the destination that you're heading for if you don't repent and change is a jail. It's eternal justice of God. That's why it's so crucial that we understand what forgiveness is. And now we need to understand, well, what is it? What is it? Look in uh, Matthew 18 again, would you please? It's in um, verse 27. I want to draw your attention to where we get the definition of what forgiveness is and, and how we can move towards not only just understanding it, but by sharing it with other people as well. There's three parts in the sentence, Matthew 27 verse, excuse me, Matthew 18 verse 27. Look at how the king forgave the servant. Three parts, verse 27. It's on the screen. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. See those three parts to that sentence? I want to think through those three parts of that sentence with you. He, the king takes pity on the servant, he cancels the debt and he lets him go. Now, the first part, part A, is to take pity on the person who's wronged you. Take pity on the person who has been unkind to you, who's done damage to your reputation, who's thwarted your potential, who's not treated you with kindness, who's forgotten you or looked over you or through you. But that, uh, that word in sentence 27 of, of Matthew chapter 18, take pity, Really, it means to take compassion on someone. It means for your heart to go out to someone, to feel what they're feeling so that you do something about it. It means that you have to do something uh, intentional, that horribly overused word in modern language. But, but this is what take pity means. Your heart goes out to someone and you do something intentional. You remember, you remember what they said, but you put yourself in their shoes. You uh, 
try and align yourself with the person who hurt you, who maligned you, who, who did you harm and damage. But that's the very thing you don't want to do. You don't want to put yourself in those shoes. What you want to do is to, to create or to hold on to a caricature of that person. Now, if we had time, I'd say, hey, let's put hands up. Let's open the mics and let's hear some holiday stories. You always do it on holiday, I trust. Let's have some holiday stories of times when one of us or two of us or a few of us have sat down in the, uh, in the cartoonist, in the caricaturist chair. Maybe we've been in holiday in France or Spain or Cornwall or somewhere else or in centre of London and we've sat in the chair. We said, let's have a laugh. And someone has made a, a caricature of you or of me. Now, if they're kind, I hope they were, a caricature artist who is a very skilled drawer or sketch artist, they, even on a good day, they take something that's small and they make it bigger. So maybe your nose is slightly bigger than your ears and then it becomes huge or your ears are slightly smaller than your nose and they become tiny. Your eyes or your smile, your smile, if it's great, it becomes huge. And that's just if they're being kind. But a caricature artist takes a crayon or a piece of charcoal or a pencil. And with that skilled hand, they study your features and they make something small great. Something that is big, small. They, they extenuate the, the weaknesses in your, in your face and they make it memorable. I just do that with words. That's the difference. When someone's harmed me, when someone said unkind things, perhaps to my face or behind my back, and I get it secondhand, they sent me an email late at night or a letter that drops silently onto the doormat, and I recognize the handwriting, or I don't. As I read the words in those means of communication, I create a caricature of that person. But I don't do it with a crayon, I do it with words. We've noticed this in lockdown in, in our house. It's been a great, it's been a great time. It's been a hard time too. Six people living under the same roof, six people who are sinners with the surname Stokes living under the same roof. And there's been a great example of original sin in our house. There's been words that have been used by me and by others. You always, you only. You never, those three pencils that we can use to caricature a picture of someone we love. Maybe you do that too with different words. They never say kind words to me. They've always treated me like this. They only think of me in this way. And we just create a caricature of people with our words. We don't hang it on the wall, but we hang it in our mind's eye. And we don't forget and the first thing we need to do if we want to deal with anger and avoid the prison sentence that that will lead to is to stop caricaturing people. Look at verse 27. The king took pity. He had compassion on someone. He put himself in their shoes. His heart went out to them. It was deliberate. It was intentional. It was costly. It was jolly hard work. It's the very thing we don't want to do. We want to hold on to the anger. And the king models for us that's not the way to begin, to forgive someone. You, compassion needs to go out and you need to have pity on someone else. Don't use words like only, never and always. They're just not true. Here's the second thing, though. The king took pity on someone and then sentence 27, the second part of that sentence, the second clause, 
you need to cancel the debt. You need to take pity. Secondly, you need to cancel the debt. If you thought the uh, first part of forgiveness was hard, wait till you get to the second one. Now, I think the key to understanding the severity of this passage is, uh, and the surprise of the passage, is to understand verse 24. Verse 24, we have the size, the scale, the magnitude of the debt that's described. It says that it's 10,000 talents. Now, we need to do some maths. Some of you will scratch your head, but here's a slide for you. This is how big the talent is. This is a vast sum of money. It was said in the uh, ancient world that a denarii or denarius, that was a day's wage. So roughly speaking, an annual salary for you and for me would be 300 denarii. Now a talent, depending on if it was silver or gold, that's why there's a difference. It's either 5,000 or 10,000 denarii. If I've lost you, just listen to this sentence. So 10,000 talents in modern day, that's billions of pounds. This sum of money that the first servant owed to the king was vast. And I hope you're scratching your head because the sentence that I want to draw your attention to now says that this person was a servant of the king. So how can a servant, as we look back from the 21st century with our understanding of that word, how can a servant who we think of as a cleaner or a gardener or a maid, if you're a very wealthy person, how can a servant run up that much debt to a king? Now, I don't think that uh, the, that word of servant that we have a modern definition of is used in the same way here. It couldn't be. How, how could someone who's a window cleaner or a gardener run up billions of pounds worth of debt? It's impossible. So what's Matthew uh, teaching us? What's Jesus painting a picture for in this parable so that we can understand? I think the people who read the Bible with far bigger minds than I, I think they're right. I think in all probability, this man was what's called a satrap. He's called a satrap. He's a, he's a governor or, or a king in the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, I want to tell you about him. The Roman Empire was governed by Caesar. All money went to him. So he had all the resources of the Roman Empire, vast sums of money. But under his rule, there were governors and kings and satraps. A satrap is a, a regional king, someone who had a responsibility like a governor in the United States or someone like a local council, a local authority, vast sums of money given to them by the government. That's a modern understanding. But this satrap, this, uh, this regional governor, he had all the resources of Caesar at his disposal to, to build roads and to control an army. And, and when you understand it that way, you can understand how it was possible for someone to misuse or to embezzle or to lose vast, vast quantities of money that were really the monies of the Caesar. He had money to build infrastructure. He had money to build local schools in modern language, vast sums of money to build hospitals and whatnot. And he lost it all. And so what should the king do? What can he do? He only has two choices. And so the servant comes to him. He knows the size of the debt. He knows that his very kingdom is under threat because the size of the debt that this satrap, this, this king, this regional ruler has rung up. 
and he chooses to cancel the debt. He chooses to absorb this vast sum of money. And at that point, we see what is at the heart of forgiveness. There are two choices in forgiveness. Either you pay or they pay, but someone has to pay. And this is what forgiveness is. The, the king in the parable chooses to absorb the debt that he hasn't accrued, that is threatening the security of his kingdom, and that his servant has rung up. We don't know how he's done it, but the king says, there's no way you can pay. I could put you in prison. I could put you into hard labor. I could seek to liquidize your assets, but I wouldn't touch it. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to pay. That's what you need to do if you want to forgive someone. You need to have compassion of them to stop caricaturing their character. Stop painting a false picture of their nature. But there's a real debt that each one of us feel when we're hurt. It's not financial. It might be, but that wouldn't be an exclusive or a limited definition of where forgiveness needs to seep in all our relationships. What about when someone says something unkind about you and it gets back to you? You can pay them back with gossip. You can make them pay by giving them the cold shoulder. Maybe you can withdraw your friendship and that will show them. Maybe you can just give them the silent treatment. Keep them at arm's length for a month, which turns into a year, which turns into lots of years. And you nurse the grudge, you feed the hardship, and it grows relationally. Years high grow the weeds. And what you want most of all is for them not to get success. You want them to suffer like the suffering they've given to you with that harsh word or that distant relationship that they never loved you as they should have done. And when that person suffers enough, if that person suffers enough, you start to feel like they've paid the debt that they owe you. Their life has not worked out as it should have done in their eyes, and that's a good thing in your eyes because of the pain they've caused you. And when that happens, it makes you more like Satan than Jesus, that bitter root that can fester and nurture and grow. Forgiveness is hard. But what's the alternative? The alternative is that you pay the debt. The alternative is that when you feel like replaying the, the tapes, you feel like rerunning the DVD of the pain that they caused you and the damage that was inflicted in your life. You refuse to do that. It needs an act of the will. It needs a determined, grace-saturated spirit. But bit by bit, stage by stage, month by month, if you grant forgiveness to that person that's hurt you and caused you pain, then eventually, Jesus says, the anger can recede and you can feel forgiveness. But according to the Bible, you don't need to feel forgiveness before you grant it. It says that in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. This is a hard teaching from Jesus. He says this, talking about prayer. Mark 11:25 if you're standing and you're praying at the temple and you have anything against anyone notice how big that is how big a how big an inclusio that is if you're praying and you have anything against anyone forgive them 
forgive them before you feel it. It's an act of the will to forgive someone. You can cancel the debt, but either they pay or you pay. And if you choose to pay and to forgive, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you. You will suffer. But suffering is how God softens our hearts because we're paying the debt instead of them paying the debt. And it will soften our spirits and it will make us more like Jesus as we offer forgiveness even before we feel we're ready to give it. That means you escape the prison of your anger. But here's the third thing. You need to let him go. You need to stop caricaturing. You need to pay the debt like the king did. This huge sum of money that cost them so much. And then thirdly, verse 27 is, says you've got to let them go. Now, some people have a problem with this. I understand. Some people say, why did the king let him go? Didn't he do something really wrong? I mean, remember the king let the man go, let the debt be paid at the risk of his very kingdom. It was a huge damaging exercise for the king to receive this huge debt. Huge sum of money. His kingdom was in jeopardy. But he forgave him at the risk of his kingdom. And the satrap, this regional king, should be so happy. He should be screaming and skipping and rejoicing. My debt has been rescinded. It's been ripped up. I'm a new person. I can start my life again. But look at sentence 28. Verse 28, the very next person that the forgiven servant comes in contact with in the parable, who owes him 100 denarii, it's not a huge amount, but it's not an insignificant amount either. He seizes the man and begins to choke him. Even before he has a chance to ask for mercy, here is the forgiven servant and he's choking the man and refusing to wipe out his debt. The forgiven one is not forgiving. And it's a window. It's a window that we see in sentence 32, just how wicked the man is. Grace has been showered upon him, but he refuses to share that forgiveness, that grace with anybody else. And here's the irony. Unless you forgive someone and you start to pursue justice without forgiving someone, that justice would always be vengeance. That justice would always be vengeance. Don't get mad. Get even, I started the sermon by saying. And Jesus says, no, don't get mad, forgive. Don't get revenge, forgive. Don't try and get even, forgive. Don't get vengeance, forgive. You'll never really pursue justice unless you begin with forgiveness. It'll always be vengeance. And you say, well, yeah, right. How do we do this? I might understand this in part. Jesus says, here are two resources as we close. Here are two resources that you and I need if we're to live a forgiving life, if we're to escape the prison of anger that the world says that we deserve to go into, that we should have as we judge other people and caricature them. How do you do it? Two resources, Jesus says in this passage, that we have a community of forgiveness. The first is the church. The first is the church. I mean, John said it on his little video earlier. I hope you and I have seen and can say amen to that as well. One of the things that lockdown has taught us abundantly is the value of the church. I want to sing with other people. I want to hear them sing. I want to laugh. I want to be with people who love Jesus and can encourage me. The church, says Jesus, is a resource. It says that in verses 15 to 17. 
It's a resource for disciplining and fun and support and accountability and encouragement and relationships are so important. I can't do it by myself. I need the church to help me to maintain healthy relationships. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, that means we're talking about Christians. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Now, show him his fault is fascinating. Show him his fault. Jesus, from the pen of Matthew, is using a word that means evangelize. It's the same word that is used to say, go and evangelize, go and tell people the good news about Jesus. And and Matthew says, from the lips of Jesus, that's what you need to do when someone sins against you. When someone sins against you, and if they're a Christian, in all probability, it's a spiritual blindness issue. You need to go and remind them of the gospel. But take care, because when you go, you may be awful at describing what's happened. So you might need to take someone else with you. But the first port of call is to go and pursue someone, not to say, this is how you hurt me. This is what you did wrong. See, I've told you, job is done. Wring my hands and I go about my other relationships. Don't do that. You may be the wrong person to do it, but go and try and pray that the Spirit of God would help you to show someone else the truth of the gospel that needs to be remembered in their lives. Don't go and tell someone off. Don't go and speak carelessly and say, see, I've done it. That person refused to listen to me. Get other brothers and Christians and other brothers and sisters around you that they would help you to restore a relationship. That's what this passage says is the goal. It's not about scoring points. It's not about looking good or feeling superior. The aim is always restoration because forgiveness matters. Relationships matter because people matter because we're made in the image of God. Sometimes verse 17 says you need to tell it to the church. And sometimes if they are someone who refuses to forgive, if they're a Christian, you might need to treat them as if they're a non-Christian. You might need to, for a time, put them outside of the community of God. It's very serious business, but don't misunderstand what this is saying. Different churches do it in different ways. But if someone refuses to forgive, they are denying the very essence of the gospel. That's why it's so serious. And the goal of church discipline is always to seek in a loving way to draw that Christian, that fellow brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ back into community. It's never punitive. It's always restorative. It's that serious. And so relationships matter. Reconciliation matters. Forgiveness matters. And Jesus says the church is the first resource for us to have healthy, God-centered, grace-saturated relationships. But here's the second one. Here's the second resource. In order to do this, you don't just need the church. As great as that is, you need compassion. You need compassion. You need the compassion of the king. Verse 27 says that. This is interesting. Verse 27, where it says the king had pity on the servant. His heart went out to them. This word is used 15 times of the Lord Jesus. His heart had compassion on the lost. His heart went out on the city of Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 15 times Jesus has this. It's the main description of his character. He's gentle and he's kind and compassionate. 
It's the main way that Jesus' emotions are described. His heart went out to them. Jesus is deliberately using this word to say this king in the parable is a description of the king, Jesus Christ who came. Jesus Christ who came and, and wiped away our sin debt at the most, well, with the greatest cost the world has ever known. Far greater than the Bank of England, far greater than a wiping off a country's debt. This is the debt of sin. And Jesus didn't wipe away this debt at the, the risk of his kingdom. He did it at the cost of his kingdom. He didn't do it at the risk of his life and his livelihood. He did it at the cost of his life. Here is uh, verse 28. The servant is choking the other guy who comes to him, daring to ask for forgiveness. What an outrageous thing you're asking me, says the one who's been forgiven. And the only way that we'll stop behaving like that second uh, or like that servant who is unforgiving is if we see the, the resource of the church, that we can't do it by ourselves. And we need to see the compassion of the King of Jesus who came the greatest journey and wiped out the greatest debt at the cost of his very life. It's the only way that we can stop hating and start loving. It's the only way we can stop seeking vengeance and offer forgiveness. If we see the resource of the church and we see the beauty of the king. There's a picture on the screen of a lovely old lady. Her name is Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman. Her sister, Betsy, lived in the Netherlands during World War II. During the Holocaust, they hid Jews from the Nazis as they came to kill them systematically. And they both, Betsy and Corrie, found their, found their time and their journey in the concentration camp. They were found and they were, along with thousands, tens of thousands of other people, Betsy, died in the concentration camp. She was led by the hand into a shower and she died and she was poisoned. Although Betsy died, Corrie survived and she became a Bible teacher and a, a Bible speaker. She would go around Europe telling her story, telling her testimony. And she tells the story in her journal, how she was once at a church and as she had finished speaking, her eyes made contact with one of her captors, someone who had been at the concentration camp, someone who was in charge of guiding women into the showers. And on the door, as she was greeting people and saying farewell, and people were saying, thank you for your talk. It was so inspirational. The SS guard came to her and wanted to shake her by the hand. I'm so grateful for your message, he said to her. And I wanted to say thank you, because I know that the blood of Jesus has washed away my sins. And he thrust out his hand towards her to shake her hand. Corey said, I struggled to, to raise my hand. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to forgive him. I couldn't. And I silently prayed, Jesus, I can't forgive this man. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, a remarkable thing happened, says Corrie. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass. While my heart sprang, a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. This wasn't the first time Corrie had forgiven someone. It couldn't have been. If it was, she could have never have done it. 
but she forgave that man. She shook his hand, someone that had killed so many people. But the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive his sins, my sins, your sins too. Here is someone, Corrie ten Boom, who modelled the forgiveness of the king, not of the parable, but of the king of the universe, who identifies with us in his compassion, who pays our debts, and in Jesus lets us go to new life, fullness of life in him.